It was a Sunday afternoon, and the two disciples, as they left Jerusalem, were trudging out with their faces downcast. As they walked, they were soon joined by a stranger, someone they did not recognize. And the stranger asked them what had gone on these past few days in Jerusalem. And they were shocked that this stranger did not know that the one who they had hoped would be the Messiah was in fact crucified by the Romans. And then the stranger started to scold them. Oh, how foolish and slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have written. And, and the stranger then began to go through scripture from, from beginning of Moses through the prophets, pointing out to them how the scripture said the Christ must suffer before entering his glory. And as the two disciples looked back on their conversation, they said to one another, weren't our hearts burning within us as this stranger spoke to us and opened to us the scriptures? Now, I'm of course speaking about Jesus talking to the two disciples on their way to Emmaus. And that portion of scripture clarifies for us that Moses, the prophets, the Old Testament, point to Jesus, the Messiah. And so what we have here before us, uh, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is uh, one of the prophetic books. It is a, it is a historical prophet. So what does 1 Samuel have to teach us about Jesus? That's the first introductory comment I want to make uh, on chapter 26. The second introductory comment is that it looks like we've been here before, haven't we? When I found out I was supposed to preach on 1 Samuel 26, I was like, oh no, it, it sounds so similar to chapter 24. You know, am I going to have anything to say? It is similar, and uh, you might remember what happened in chapter 24. It is like the Casablanca of uh, the Old Testament, right? Uh, where David goes, out of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, you know, she walks into mine, but you know, it's Saul walking into his case. And there, David had the opportunity to show uh, Saul mercy. And again, we see this happening in chapter 26, but... It is similar, but there are differences. And there are significant differences, and the differences have a lot to teach us. We've been here before, but this story actually extends our understanding. The third introductory comment that I want to make is that if you refer to the outline, you will see that I have referred to David as the, the righteous one, the righteous. And that comes from verse 23. If you look at verse 23, it is David's evaluation of his conduct in this chapter. And he says, the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So David's own evaluation of his conduct in this chapter is that he has been righteous and faithful. So I've referred to him as the one who is righteous. Now, as we look at the four points 
let us God to help us as we hear from His Word. Let's pray together. Father, unless you work in our hearts, softening them to your Word, unless you unplug our ears and open our eyes, we would still be blind to your truth. So Father, in confidence of your love and grace to us, we ask that you work in our midst in each and every one of us here. That you help us hear your word, you convince us of your truth, and you help us to walk in light of it to your glory and our good, we pray. Amen. So the first point, the faith of the righteous. The faith of the righteous, verses 1 to 12. So we are told that the Ziphites, again, uh, want to score brownie points with Saul, and they go and tell Saul where David is. Now, there's an interesting uh, historical detail about the place, uh, Hakila. It used to be called Haki only. It is only when some Singaporeans came that it became Hakila. And you see that Saul's repentance from chapter 24 didn't last long. Because when he was told that David was there, again he gathered the 3,000 elite troops that were on standby, you know, waiting for David to appear. And then, okay, they go and chase after him. And you see, David's response is that, hey, is it really Saul after me? I mean, didn't we have this agreement? Didn't he repent? And so he has to send scouts out to make sure it is really Saul. But this time, instead of waiting for Saul to uh, come to him, David actually goes to Saul. And David, together with Abishai, uh, Abishai is his sister's son, so that's his nephew. Uh, they walk into Saul's camp. And verse 12 explains how they did it. Because a deep sleep from the Lord had come upon everyone in Saul's army. And so they were able to walk, you know, even though Abishai hit the cattle, and then David goes, shh, but you know, nobody wakes up. Because he's just snoring all around. Because the Lord has put them into a deep sleep. And so they get into the center where Saul and his chief bodyguard, Abner, they are surrounded by the 3,000 troops and there Saul is sleeping with his spear beside him. And so Abishai comes to the natural conclusion. Today, God has handed your deliver, your, your, delivered your enemy into your hands. And Abishai says, let me do it. Right, just one strike of the spear. Now, this is something that's uh, different because back in the cave, it was the man who said, Hey, today's the day, you do it. But Abishai has learned his lesson. David gets a bit squirmish and all that. So, David, this is the day, let me do it, right? But David stops him. And David says, Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed? and remain guiltless? And the answer, of course, is no one. And instead, David shows his faith in the Lord by saying in verse 10, read together with me. David says in verse 10, As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come, and he will die. Or he will go into battle and perish. Now, dear Ralph Davis, in his commentary, has this uh, helpful thing to say. He says, 
the, the Christian who places his faith in God will not always know how God will resolve the problem. The Christian who places his faith in God will not always know how God will bring about relief uh, to the problem that they are facing. But the Christian knows what is and is not God's will for him. So, for example, the person who is struggling at work, uh, you know, unreasonable boss, you know, so much work piled on, and then, you know, very uh, backstabbing colleagues. Now, the, the Christian who believes and trusts in God, praying for deliverance from this situation, will not know exactly how God might bring about relief. The, the boss may go into early retirement or be fired, you know, or by hit by a bus, you know. You, 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 the Christian doesn't know. But what the Christian does know is that even as he continues to work there, he must do so with integrity. As he continues to work there, he must not complain, he must not sink to the same level and uh, act like the rest of the people there who do not know God. It is the same in marriage. That if there is a uh, matrimonial problem, uh, one might not know how God might bring about relief. But the Christian knows that even in that trying situation, he must not commit adultery. He must continue to, if he's a, uh, the, the husband, he must continue to love his wife. Or if he's a wife, must submit to the husband. The Christian may not know exactly. It may be this or this or this that God may work, but he does know what is God's will and what is not God's will. And with God's help, to be obedient to his will. And so that's what we see uh, David doing in these verses. Now there is an interesting detail in verse 11 and 12. David stopped Abishai from you know, killing Saul. And then he says, Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let go. But then verse 12 says what? So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. See, it seemed as if David had given the command to Abishai, but then verse 12 tells us it was David who took the spear and the water jug. Now, when I was studying this passage, this was one of the, the, the places where I put a big question about what's happening here. And uh, I think the best answer is that David, because he's a, you know, he's a chosen king, of course he commands Abishai, you know, who's his nephew. Now, go, get a thing. But after he gave the command, he thought, hey, better not. Scully Abishai get tempted to pick up the spear and then stab uh, Saul. So, okay, he gave the command, but he changed his mind and he went to get it himself in case Abishai should be tempted to take things into his own hands. So the point is, uh, David is very careful to be protecting Saul. So that's uh, the first point. And the, the action that we see here in verses 1 to 12 prepare us for the centerpiece of the passage, which is the, the dialogue that goes on between David and Saul. But before we get to that, there is this interesting exchange between Abner, which brings us to our second point, the contrast with the righteous. The contrast with the righteous, verses 13 to 16. So David goes a safe distance away, and the surprise is he doesn't call out to Saul. 
but he calls out to Adna, and he taunts Adna. You know, which man would like to be asked the question, are you a man? Right, no one, especially not the chief bodyguard of Saul. And what happens here is that David accuses Adna and his men of a very, very serious charge. And it is a very serious charge of failing to protect the Lord their King. Look at verse 15 and 16. You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard the king? Someone came to destroy your lord, the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the lord lives, you and your men must die. Because you did not guard your master, the lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his now, in David taking the spear and the water jug is symbolic of uh, taking away Saul's life. Because the spear represents uh, his instrument for defense and attack, and that's taken away. And in the desert, water is the sustenance of life, and, and David has taken away Saul's water jug. So, symbolically, David has taken away these things that represent Saul's protection, defense, and life without actually doing it. And so, he accuses rightly Adna and the men. You have failed. Someone came and could have killed. You have failed to protect the Lord your King. The point is, the point that David is making, I think, is they have failed. They deserve to die. But the one who is being hunted, the one that these 3,000 crack troops came out to hunt for, is David. But David is actually the righteous one who has protected Saul. If, if David had not stopped Abishai, Saul would be dead. So David is the righteous one. He is the one that does not deserve to die because he is the one who actually protected Saul's life. And when we get to this point, Saul has been roused from his sleep. And this brings us to the next conversation. And to our third point, in verses 17 to 20, the suffering of the righteous. The suffering of the righteous. So Saul recognizes David's voice, and he tries the, David, my son, tactic again. And David answers with a series of rhetorical questions in verse 18. Why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What wrong am I guilty of? And then friends, in verses 19 and 20, we come to the main thing that David wants to say to Saul. Okay? The main thing, you know, the reason, the main reason why David and, and Abishai went to the center of Saul's camp you know, without killing him, took his spear and water jug. The main reason why David did all that is so that he can say this to Saul. And we know this is the main thing because David begins in verse 19 by explicitly and formally requesting Saul to listen to him. So he says in verse 19, 
Now, let my Lord the King listen to his servant's words. You see, so this is what he wants Saul to hear. This is what he wants to say to Saul. So I think this is the main part of uh, the passage that we have today. And he says, If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. So David is saying, you know, you coming after me, well, maybe, maybe there is the possibility that it is the Lord who has commanded you. It is the Lord who has incited you to come after me. And, and, and if that's the case, let me offer an offering so that God may be appeased and then you don't, you don't have to keep coming after me. Now, if that, that's one possibility. The second possibility, David says, is if, however, people have done it, you know, people have incited you, come against me, you know, it's your, it's your court officials whispering in your ear, you know, you must do this to David, you know, your throne will not be secure. If it's people who have done it, then may they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go, serve other gods. Now, that's the, that's the second possibility. People have done it. Now, let's uh, pause and notice that David is too polite to mention the third possibility. Here was the third possibility. It's because of your envy and your jealousness. Okay? No, he, David's too polite to do that. So, he just stops at the second possibility. And we see here, in these verses, an insight into the suffering that David is facing. So far, in 1 Samuel, it is these words of David which provide us the deepest insight into the suffering that he is going through. And the suffering he has to go through on his path to becoming king is not physical suffering. He doesn't highlight that. But of course, if we imagine it, his running from Saul in the forest, in the wilderness, does involve physical suffering. Right? There's, there's lack of water, lack of food, you know, you don't know where you're going to lay your head, and there's danger from wild animals, this and that, you can't take a bath as you like. There's all this physical suffering. <clears throat> but David doesn't focus on that. Instead, he focuses on the spiritual suffering that he goes through. His spiritual suffering of being chased by Saul, such that potentially he has to be chased out of the land of Israel, away from what the Lord has given to his people, uh, the Lord's inheritance. And so, out of Israel, away from the tabernacle, he would not be able to offer the, 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 the appropriate sacrifices to God. He would be forced to live in pagan land, and as it were, forced to worship other gods because he would be cut off cut off from the tabernacle, cut off from access to God, cut off from the presence of the Lord. And I think his uh, request in verse 20 is significant. Because in chapters 24 and 26, where he's uh, he's spat Saul and he has this conversation with Saul, in both these chapters, this is his only request. You know, in chapter 24, he puts his hope 
you know, in the Lord, may the Lord, you know, uh, take vengeance for me, this and that. But, but in verse 20, this is his sole request. I mean, apart from verse 19 where he says, please listen to me. But in terms of, you know, really asking something from Saul, verse 20 is his sole request. So I think it is significant. And verse 20 actually says, Now, do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. Even if I should die, my king, let me die here in the land, not, not away, you know, being chased to pagan land where, where I may have to die there, but, but let my blood not fall far from the presence of the Lord. This is his one request to Saul. And you see how important this is for David. This is his one request that, that he values and treasures the presence of the Lord so much that he makes this one request to Saul. And what is Saul's response? Well, we have that in verse 21 to 25. And our fourth point, the hope of the righteous. The hope of the righteous. Well, Saul's response is to say, Oh, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely, surely I've acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is a king's spear. Ask your young man to come and get it. You see, Saul has gone on about how sorry he is, but, but David you know, just cuts him off and says, here's a spear, send someone to get it. Because David's been here before. He's heard all these words of contrition and repentance from Saul, and he knows that they don't amount to much. And instead, David says in verse 24, As surely as I valued your life today, so may you value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Alright? That's not what it says. Although that's what we might have expected it to say. Because David says, As I value your life, so please, will you value my life? But David doesn't say that. Instead, he says, May the Lord value my life. Because David's hope is not in Saul repenting. David's hope is not in Saul having this big change of heart. David's hope is in the Lord. And the chapter ends with words of Saul to David. And it is the last thing that Saul ever says to David, because this is the last time over here that they ever see each other. And in verse 25, Saul says, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. Now, whether he is sincere or not, we don't know. But Saul leaves David with a word of blessing uh, and with the, the word that he will surely triumph. So, what does 1 Samuel 26 have to say concerning Jesus, our true King? Well, in chapter 26, we see David acting righteously 
But though we see him here acting righteously, we know that David is far from being righteous. Because the author of 1 Samuel has put chapter 25 in between chapter 24 and 26. And in 25, we see clearly that David is far from righteous. Because in being insulted by uh, Nabal, he was ready to kill not just Nabal, but all the men. And in doing so, he was more like Saul than anyone else. And it was only by God's gracious restraint that he did not commit that. So we see David far from being righteous. But Jesus is indeed the righteous one, the one in whom there is no sin whatsoever. And we saw in the 1 Peter 3 reading that he is the righteous one. And just as David endured suffering on his path to becoming king, so it is with Jesus. And David could ask in verse 19, If it is the Lord, then may he accept an offering. But if it is people, then may they be cursed. But for the case of Jesus, it was both. It was both God and the people who have handed him over to be, uh, to be suffering. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, which is uh, up there on the slide. In Peter's speech on Pentecost, he says in verse 23, This man, referring to Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So very clear, it is God who has handed Jesus over according to his purpose. But also, it is you with the help of wicked men who put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It is a death by crucifixion. Death by the cross. One of the most humiliating and painful ways to die. And yet, and yet, none of the Gospels focus on the physical suffering of Jesus. Because it is the spiritual suffering that was far worse. On the cross, uh, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark record for us Jesus crying out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now in the Gospels, we see Jesus, whenever he refers to God, he would refer to him as my Father. My Father this, my Father this, our Father this. But only here, when he's on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, instead of Father. Because on the cross, the righteous one was bearing our sin for us. And so, God the Father, the Holy One, has to turn away. Indeed, His righteous anger, His wrath has to fall on the Son. And so what was the most secure, the most intimate relationship in all the universe, in all eternity, between Father and Son, was torn apart. Jesus was cut off. 
Jesus' blood literally fell far, far from the presence of God the Father. That's why he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? So, dear Christian, are you weak and weary? Are you being hit by some storms in your life? Does it feel like all you can do is just to hang on? And even that sometimes feels like it's too much to do. Or maybe you feel dirty and guilty because you keep giving in to temptation. No matter how hard you try, you try, you genuinely try. You, you confess to people, you are accountable to some people, you, you, you read the Bible, you ask for prayer. You are, you're, I'm not talking about those who sin blatantly. I'm talking about those who are genuinely trying. And yet, you cannot help but give in to that sin again and again and again. Have you heard what 1 Samuel 26 is telling us? The one thing David was most concerned about, not to be cut off from the presence of the Lord. That's what we should be most concerned about. And so if you have truly come, come to Jesus as your King, if you have truly trusted and placed your faith in Him to save you, then no matter what you are going through, no matter what you are going through, no matter what you are going through, you do not ever have to ask the question, why have you forsaken me? Because that cannot happen. Because Jesus was forsaken for us. We who trust Him will never be forsaken. So no matter what you are going through, it is not God forsaking you. No matter what you are going through, you are not cut off from the presence of the Lord because He has already experienced that for us. He was the one cut off. He was the one forsaken so that we would never have to, so that we who trust Him can be confident of God's presence now and eternity, seeing Him face to face. 1 Samuel 26 points us to Jesus, our King. This King who is worthy of our trust, worthy of all our adoration, worthy of our living and dying for Him. Such a King. May God help us live for Him.